Welcome to Future of Freedom. I'm your host, Scott Bertram. Future of Freedom is a production of America's Talking Network. You can check out all of our great podcasts at americastalking.com. To support great podcasts like this one, please donate by clicking the link in the show description. We bring you interviews today from different sides of the debate over ranked choice voting. In a little bit, we'll be joined by Jason Sneed. He's executive director of Honest Elections Project and co-author of the book, The Case Against Ranked Choice Voting. First, we talk with Walter Olson. Walter is senior fellow at the Cato Institute, cato.org, for more. Walter, if you would, I want to make sure as we begin our conversation today that our listeners have a good idea of what we're talking about. So if you could explain ranked choice voting in, in theory and then in execution, what does it look like? Well, in regular voting, you have a ballot and there might be, let's say, five candidates on it and you pick your favorite and vote for that one. In ranked choice voting, the five candidates are there, but you pick your first choice, your second choice, your third choice and so forth. And so the ballot may be a little bigger, or if it's a paper ballot, it might even have numbers that you write next to the thing. But but it's getting more information from you. And the most common form of ranked choice voting in the U.S. Uh, uh, is called instant runoff voting, and it's when the candidates are running for one seat. So I'm going to stick to that. There are more complicated things you can do if there are multiple seats. But uh, in regular ranked choice voting, here's what happens. Uh, they collect the ballots. If anyone has a majority of first choices, uh, then they're declared the winner. Uh, if no one has a majority of first choices, in other words, if someone's got maybe 40% and someone's got 20 or 30% and so forth, then uh, you work by a process of elimination from the bottom, kind of like a, a lot of sports events. Uh, whoever had the fewest votes uh, is declared eliminated and their ballots are looked at and whatever their second choice was uh, of the people who made them their first choice get redistributed to the other four piles. And so everyone picks up some of the votes of the eliminated candidate. And maybe that's enough to uh, carry someone up to 50% plus one of the votes. If so, the election's over. If not, then you just repeat that. You keep on eliminating candidates from the bottom until one candidate is left who has more than half of the remaining votes. So ranked choice voting is not just a theory. We've seen it in practice outside the U.S., but also inside the U.S. and a bit more in recent years. How would you grade or evaluate the performance of ranked choice voting in the wild? Well, the versions of it that have been popular overseas tend to be a little more complicated. They are uh, in places like Ireland and Australia. I would rate them as very successful. Certainly, the voters in those countries have been content with them for a century or more. Uh, conservative parties have done just fine under those systems. The righteous voting in the United States, which is the simpler kind that I mentioned, which is usually for a single seat like mayor, um, has really been growing by leaps and bounds, uh, mostly in big cities, although now you have the state of Maine and the state of Alaska have become the first two states to jump in and do it. Um, Maine and Alaska have been doing it for so short a time that I'm not going to try to be sweeping about, yes, it's a wonderful success uh, versus no, you know, lots of discontent. There are some people who are discontented, and there are a lot of other people who thought that it has, has worked great. As far as the big cities, you know, I think a lot of these cities are not especially well run anyway. <laughs> and so, so uh, what ranked choice voting 
does in these big cities, and and uh, we can go on about some of the uh, benefits that people perceive in it, but um, let me just point to one of the problems you often have in a big city with the race for mayor or the race for council president or whatever, which is that uh, it may be a one-party election where everyone's coming from the same party, the Democratic Party, and maybe a lot of people running. 50 people who all want to be mayor. And so you get the potential that someone in that very crowded field could slip through with like 29% of the vote who is disliked by most voters, but happens to have that one, uh, you know, that block behind them. And ranked choice voting allows to sort through to try to find whether that person really is the consensus candidate or not. And so it's useful there. Uh, one other thing that ranked choice voting can do, and we can get into the, the details on this, but it, you know the problem with spoiler candidates, and this happens in lots of different states. You know, the Republicans and Democrats will be closely split on a particular race, and then there'll be some third party. Maybe it will be the Greens or the Libertarians or whatever. And that spoiler candidate will get like 4% of 5% of the vote, which is just enough to take votes away from the more popular of the others. So you get uh, the election being decided and often decided in the wrong way, because if someone is uh, taking away votes from one of the two parties, it's often because they were closer to that party's views. So, so the majority winds up being frustrated. The less popular side gets in because of that spoiler candidate. Again, look how ranked choice voting is well tailored to solving that problem. Because then the third party candidate, you ask them, okay, your candidate didn't win. Who's your second choice? And then you get the real runoff, uh, uh, the, the effective vote between the two major party candidates. I want to follow up on that by asking, I guess, a two-part question, but they're related. One is that there is an argument for ranked choice voting that says that it will lead to more moderate candidates because people have to rank them or, or are able to rank them one through five or six, and friendlier campaigns because you don't want to uh, you don't want to make a certain voting block mad at you and have them rank you lower on the ballot. When it comes to those spoiler candidates, though, so, so the first part is. Do you think that's true? Second part, though, is when it comes to those spoiler candidates and perhaps the more extreme candidates, might we see more under ranked choice voting because they know if they run, their chances of playing spoiler is actually diminished, that they might not have an effect on the election, but they can still get their voice out there, be it perhaps on the extremes of either side of the political spectrum. Well, you, you had a bunch of interesting points, and so I'm going to have to try to uh, <laughs> deal with them one by one. Uh, I mean, let me start with... Uh, some of the, the last ones. We got a view in the U.S. Senate race in Maine uh, of uh, a bit of how the spoiler phenomenon plays out because there you had Susan Collins, the Republican, you had a liberal Democrat running against her, and then you had one uh, candidate on each side, one who thought that Collins wasn't conservative enough, one who thought, said that Gideon, the Democrat, wasn't liberal enough. Um, now, um, they made their point they uh, had their campaigns, but they I believe both of the more extreme candidates said, by the way, after you give me your first vote to make a, make a statement or to send a message, please give your second choice vote to the major party candidate who's closer to <laughs> me. Because, uh, you know, the gun rights person who didn't find Susan Collins strong enough on gun rights, nonetheless recognized she was a whole lot better than the Democrat on gun rights uh, from his point of view. So, so it kind of worked as far as 
they gave their voters rational advice there. Uh, it's a very interesting question whether uh, by making being a third party candidate uh, sort of cost free, that is, you're not going to spoil the chances of the candidate of the major party candidate you think is better. Is that going to encourage more people to run as, as third party? And it's interesting. I don't uh, I don't think we have enough of a track record to speak surely on that. I will say as someone who has known a lot of people who cast protest votes for the Libertarian Party, uh, I do think that there's something of having one's cake and eating it too about getting to send the message, <laughs> these major party candidates are not what we wanted, and then come in anyway and get to affect the final result. And then to the first part of the question, which is, does ranked choice voting encourage more moderate candidates, friendlier campaigns? Is that something we should desire when we look to set up a voting system? Well, as far as moderate goes, uh, there's some uh, interesting evidence that uh, candidates selected by ranked choice voting may be a little more open to uh, legislative compromise. I see that as, not, again, not really having been re resolved yet. What I see is that uh, tendency is, is, is for it to get more consensus-oriented candidates. That doesn't always mean the middle. Sometimes uh, there can be a consensus in which the middle is wrong. And <laughs> you, you, know, you, you assemble people from, uh, and, and, and I point out in the, uh, one of the pieces I wrote on that, that if you look at candidates who have had cross-party appeal or appeal to independence, and those candidates probably do do a little better under ranked choice voting, uh, it's very mixed bag. Uh, Ronald Reagan had a lot of cross-party appeal, but so does Bernie Sanders. You know, Donald Trump has a lot of cross-party appeal. Um, it's not consistently centrist figures who show appeal to independents and uh, voters from the other party. Finally, very, very interesting point about how it changes campaigns. And there, uh, at this point, I've seen enough and I've heard enough from people who've been in these states that I do think there's actually an effect. Um, people are more cautious about turning the whole campaign into just a uh, ter tearing down the, the opponent's personalities. Because if you do that, if you run one of these negative personal campaigns, um, you tick off a bunch of people whose second choices you might want. Mm -hmm. And so uh, and, and an example I use is, you know, everyone knows there are campaigns where one of the candidates has lock locked up a particular constituency and everyone who is you know, st strongly, uh, you know, for one issue is for that candidate. Currently, the incentive is for the other candidates to not spend any time going out, shaking hands and cultivating that constituency because they know it's locked up by candidate D. And under ranked choice voting, uh, you really have a reason to go out and campaign to a bunch of different uh, audiences and ask them for that second and third choice vote. Uh, it changes things. It, it, I think it de-demonizes a little bit. I don't know whether it depolarizes, but it makes people think as they're filling out their ballot, wait a minute, you know, of the three people from the other party, I know I would never make them my first choice, but is one of them maybe less awful than the other two? And that's a useful thing to get people to think about because not all of the people from the opposite party are equally bad. And understanding that is part of recreating kind of a center that can talk to each other. What does it really mean that someone ranks a candidate as a fourth or fifth or sixth choice? Is that an affirmative statement of support? Should we take it that way? Um, and, and does it mean something different if if instead of the ranked choice system, we continue to have a system with runoffs and we present them with a non-theoretical one versus one matchup, do people act differently in that situation? 
I've had a lot of interesting conversations with people about those lower choice rankings. There are people who say, uh, you know, even making them my eighth choice somehow gives them sanction. You know, it, it suggests that uh, they, they could get elected and it wouldn't be over my dead body. <laughs> I, I urge people, you know, if you want to be influential in a ranked choice voting election, use all your ranks because you never know when uh, the other side is going to be uh, so popular that you're, it's going to come down to the, the choice between your seventh and your eighth choice, uh, you still want to be in there, making uh, <laughs> you know, giving a boost to the one who is not quite as awful. But um, nonetheless, I understand when people don't want to use some of their lower rankings for that point. Candidates, of course, uh, and this is one of the interesting things about ranked choice voting. After the fact, uh, there's a very rich database of people looking at uh, where did the subsequent choices go, and the candidates look there for clues about oh, I did surprisingly well. In getting second choices from that community, maybe I should uh, adjust, you know, what I have to say to appeal to them more. Or alternatively, I did really badly in that other community uh, who were giving me last rankings. Maybe I need to repair my message because they don't feel that I'm listening to them. Uh, so, uh, again, these effects, other than on who actually wins, are interesting, and we it, we don't know what all of them are. Even uh, it's one of the reasons why uh, the uh, the debate could change as we get more experience. Walter Olson with us as we talked ranked choice voting. This is somewhat more complicated than a simple I vote for this person. We talk often about increasing voter turnout. Is there any evidence? Are we concerned that ranked choice voting people will simply say it's too complicated? I don't want to go. And even if that's a small percentage of the population, is the benefit worth that trade off? I wish there were stronger uh, studies finding that ranked choice voting actually increased turnout. There it certainly is an argument from theory that um, uh, there might be people showing up uh, because they see that they've got more voice in this. As far as people who feel uh, I'm too confused by this, uh, I sit down and tell them, look, you can still just vote for one candidate if you want. You can treat this just like a traditional ballot. And no one's going to, uh, you know, uh, throw snowballs at you. Uh, you you have a perfect right to just name your first choice, uh, drop the ballot uh, in in the box, and leave. And um, so, anything beyond that, as far as people feeling emboldened, maybe you know, the second time they run into one of these ballots to maybe do two of the choices, anything beyond that is just with their own comfort level. Never a reason for anyone to stay away from the polls. One final question for Walter Olson. You spent a bit of time on this on your uh, essay at Real Clear Policy, and that is the belief that perhaps ranked choice voting favors one particular party over another party because of the way it is set up. Do we see that happening either in, again, ranked choice elections uh, across the country that are currently happening or even in other countries that are using a form of ranked choice voting? Do we see a, a, a bias in the way that ranked choice voting is set up? I think there's every reason to believe that ranked choice voting does not have a left versus right bias. We've talked about whether it might have a little bit of a tug to the center, but as far as left versus right, uh, certainly in Australia and Ireland, uh, you uh, don't see any such bias. Uh, in the states that have done it in the United States and and the and the cities, and we could talk. I. Uh, I firmly believe that Alaska, uh, as a conservative state, uh, uh, you know, wound up with conservative results. It voted for its very conservative governor. Uh, we, that's a separate argument. I know there are people who believe the personalities there uh, 
you know, affected the outcome. Uh, as far as big cities, let's be frank. Uh, big cities re return uh, typically very liberal and left-wing mayors and city councils before and after they adopt for interest voting. If you're talking <laughs> New York, San Francisco, Minneapolis, Seattle, whatever, whichever big city. Um, there is a little bit of evidence piling up that the uh, ranked choice voting has uh, impeded uh, what had been a trend for the most left-wing candidates to keep winning. Uh, you see that certainly in New York, where um, the candidate who was seen as you know too close to the police to satisfy most of the left-wingers, uh, you know, just not a systematic movement liberal, uh, wound up getting in, and uh, you know, in part because he got Asian communities and and uh, black communities to unite in a somewhat new coalition. But, but helped by ranked choice voting. And I've heard that from other, some other cities too. It, these cities have not turned conservative. They reflect what the voters want, but they may prevent sometimes the phenomenon by which the left has better discipline and can get in there with its 25 to 30% and steamroll a divided set of somewhat more moderate Democratic opponents. Walter Olson is senior fellow at the Cato Institute, cato.org, C-A-T-O.org. Walter, thanks so much for joining us here on Future of Freedom. It's been my pleasure. Now to hear another side of the argument over ranked choice voting, we talk with Jason Sneed. He's executive director of Honest Elections Project and co-author of the book, The Case Against Ranked Choice Voting. Jason, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I want to ask first, how would you define the goals of our voting system? What, what, what should be the goals of, what, of whatever process we use? Well, I think that the, uh, the top priorities of elections should, of course, be one, to constitute a government that reflects the will of voters, uh, two, that promotes confidence through transparent and clear rules that uh, that give assurances to voters. After all, confidence is the way that you promote participation. And then three, I think that an election system should be uh, set up so that, as we like to say, it makes it both easy to vote and hard to cheat, which means that you provide for the security of the system. Uh, and, and it's really, you've got to think about, you know, not just access, but also the integrity of the process if you want to actually be able to fulfill all three of those pieces that I just outlined, because if you want to have an election system that delivers results that reflect the will of voters, you've got to have rules, safeguards, transparency, and accountability. Now, ranked choice voting is not just a concept. It is not just a theory. It has been used in some elections across the United States. How would you grade the execution of ranked choice voting in the wild when compared to what we just laid out as the goals of a voting system? Well, I think that ranked choice voting in practice comes up short on all of the metrics that I just outlined. Uh, when you think about the opacity of the process, you know, ranked choice voting essentially turns elections into an algorithmically driven black box where it is exceptionally difficult to explain how you get from the beginning of the process to the end of the process and show voters how you actually get the results of these elections. So I think it fails from the perspective of clarity and transparency 
transparency and promoting confidence in results by making elections themselves more complicated. And then, of course, when you're thinking not just about the tabulation, but the voting experience, you know, we said we want to make it easy to vote. Well, it makes it harder to vote for individual voters, particularly voters who are, for instance, uh, low propensity voters or senior citizens, because we have to remember uh, when we're talking about ranked choice voting, we often hear examples uh, that range from pick your favorite ice cream flavor to pick your favorite color of M&M. And that's fairly straightforward. But what you don't realize is that with a ranked choice election, you're not being asked to pick between things that you already know. You're being asked to to rank uh, four or five candidates, many of whom you may have no idea who they are, and do it in 12, 15, 20 races. So now instead of ranking five things, now you're ranking 50, 60, 70 more candidates. So you're actually making it harder to vote. So I think on every level, ranked choice voting fails based on the metrics that we were just discussing earlier. Do we know any hard data about the kind of voter that ends up ranking many choices on a ranked choice voting ballot, meaning they get down to a seventh choice or an eighth choice if there are that many candidates as compared to voters who list only two candidates. Do we know what kind of voter is a voter who ends up listing many candidates on a ranked choice ballot? Well, there is some data that suggests that when you are voting in a ranked choice election, ranked choice voting actually has a, a way of depressing turnout amongst low propensity uh, voters, low income voters, minority voters, and so forth, and that their ballots are actually more likely to be what's termed exhausted, which of course means that you uh, don't rank all the candidates in a race. Your candidates are eliminated in the course of a ranked choice tabulation, and then at the uh, at the end of the line, your ballot gets thrown out. And so that certainly implies that it's going to be people that are what you might consider to be political elites, far more engaged with the process, far more read into the process, people who are, frankly, election nerds that will get into this stuff. And that's also who uh, ranked choice voting often most appeals to. It's the people who, like me, admittedly, think of election night sort of like the Super Bowl. But that's not the way that most people think about elections. And certainly when you look at the data, uh, when you look at the potential disparities across racial lines, for instance, with ballot exhaustion, you start to see that there is an ugly side to ranked choice voting. And it does make it very likely that uh, certain groups of people are going to wind up having their ballots thrown out because they aren't ranking all those candidates. I think that we need to be focusing our attention on improving the system that we have rather than reinventing it from the bottom up, especially when we're talking about systems like ranked choice voting that just make voting harder. Ranked choice voting supporters argue that in the end of ranked choice voting, the winner, the person who ends up winning the election, will receive majority support after getting through those rounds of voting. Is that not true? I like to say that what it does is deliver a mirage, not a majority. Because if you're asking me, is a third place vote the same as a first place vote? I would say no, right? I mean, let's assume, for instance, that we've got five people that are running in a particular race and you, the voter, are asked to rank those people. At some point, the pendulum swings from adamant support to adamant opposition. And, you know, a second place vote may mean that you're okay with a candidate. A third place vote may signal that you're a little skeptical of a candidate. A fourth place vote may signal opposition, but you feel like you have to rank all these people so that you don't have an exhausted ballot. Ranked choice voting doesn't weight these in any way. It doesn't treat a fourth place vote any differently from a first place vote. What it does is it eliminates candidates, redistributes votes, and then at the end of the day says that we've got a majority. 
majority, but it only delivers that majority by A, eliminating exhausted ballots. So you're removing votes from the total votes cast in an election. So with each round of elimination, it's as though fewer and fewer people vote. And then B, by moving second, third, and even fourth place votes up to the lead. So you're treating all votes equally, even though that's not the way that it is in the mind of the voter casting the ballot. So it's a mirage. It's not a real majority. If you want to get a real majority, and I don't believe that you have to do this. I think plurality elections make a lot of sense. They're simple, they're transparent, and they're perfectly democratic. But if you want to get a true majority, there is a simple way to do this. Hold an election and then have a runoff with the top two vote getters. That presents voters with a crystal clear choice. And then they can go to the voting booth and you always get over 50% of the vote with a traditional runoff. There are the possibilities of of delays when when counting ranked choice ballots, but we already have delays in counting ballots in many places across the country, California perhaps chief among them. If we're waiting a couple of days now for results, is, is the delay in ranked choice voting counting really a strike against it? Well, I think that the question here is, do we want to make that problem worse? Uh, take a uh, take a look at what happened in Alaska, for instance. They took 15 days to gather up all the ballots before they were able to report their results. We already have places in uh, decidedly important states like Arizona, for instance. Maricopa County takes weeks to count ballots as it is, and Arizona is one of the states that is facing a potential ranked choice voting ballot measure. The problem with ranked choice voting from the perspective of exacerbating delays is that you cannot tabulate the results until all ballots are in. And that's a problem because you've got a lot of places that accept ballots after election day. Then you have to process those ballots. And that's the problem that you run into in some places like Maricopa County. But you have to wait until all the ballots are in before you can actually tabulate all the results. So now you're looking at as ranked choice voting expands around the country, more and more states unable to to report even, you know, ideas as to what the results are going to be on election night. That means that we're not going to be waiting days. We're potentially going to be waiting weeks. And then there's the problem of litigation. If you have a close race, which with a ranked choice contest no longer means close in the final outcome, but could also mean close in the first round of elimination or the second or the third round of elimination, because the order of elimination has a potentially profound impact on the final outcome of an election. Now you're saying we have to wait weeks for the the final count to come in, and then we have to wait weeks more for litigation to resolve itself in potentially close races. Yes, we have delays now, but we also know how to start to get those delays pushed back so that we can get closer to having results on election night. And whether you're talking about the litigation or the tabulation or the the waiting for ballots to come in, ranked choice just exacerbates this problem. And that creates opportunities, unfortunately, for suspicions to cement themselves in the minds of voters. And that is something that we very much need to avoid as we're talking about promoting confidence in our election system. Talking with Jason Sneed about ranked choice voting here on Future of Freedom. Should we desire a voting system that leads to more moderate candidates or a friendlier brand of politics? Uh, And if so, is ranked choice voting a way to, to get to that point? Well, I think that uh, ranked choice voting makes a lot of promises along these lines. But look, we have to recognize that 
our politics are, are not divisive because of the election system that we use. They're divisive because we are divided as a country, right? You've got half the country that, for instance, says that, hey, we ought to have socialized medicine and universal health care, and half the country that says, I don't think so. You've got half the country that is debating uh, the role of the federal government and the other half that is on the other side of that issue. We are very divided as a country. And what ranked choice voting essentially promises is that we can paper over those divisions, pretend that they are aren't there and we'll promote candidates that will be nicer and will at least appear to reach across the aisle. But when you actually look at what ranked choice voting does, it doesn't create an incentive towards more moderate candidates. It creates an incentive for candidates to appear inoffensive, but they still want to win elections and they still have political beliefs. So what you actually see in places like Maine that use ranked choice voting, when Maine brought that online, you saw this sharp spike in negative independent expenditures, which means outside, quote unquote, dark money groups were spending more money and were running negative attack ads for candidates because the candidates wanted to appear as polite, nice and moderate. So it doesn't actually make our, our politics any better. It just kind of papers over the deep divisions that exist in our society. And it doesn't get dark money out of politics and it doesn't really make anything nicer or better. I think if we want to get more towards a moderate, less divisive politics, we need to actually be more forthright in the fact that we have disagreements and we need to resolve those through the existing democratic process. To put it another way, rather than change the rules up in the system and create some new voting um, uh, procedure that puts a Band-Aid over a problem, I think we should actually cure the problem. And I think that's going to mean that we have some difficult uh, political conversations and debates as a country. We endure division, but this is hardly the first time that we have been divided as a country. And it is certainly not going to be the last time. I think the fact that we are having these debates is healthy, but we need to lean into the institutions that we have rather than recreate them with things like ranked choice voting. There might be voters out there who look at ranked choice voting and say, this is good. I, I don't like the primary process. I don't like being forced to choose a party to draw a ballot in a primary. I want to vote for some Republicans, some Democrats. Uh, I like some of them from both parties. Ranked choice voting, I can put them one, two, three, rank them where I like. Why is ranked choice voting not the solution for someone who just doesn't like the current primary process? Well, we have to remember that political parties uh, fulfill a, a lot of purposes and a lot of functions in our system of government. And believe me, people have problems with political parties. I have problems with political parties. It's a very natural thing. But political parties themselves also have, I would argue, constitutional rights to uh, association, for instance. And so the primary system itself actually does a lot to, to uh, essentially get our parties to build a big tent coalition and try to bring people in. And I think that that sort of incentive structure in the long run does a lot for stability. So people may not like the existing system and there's always an element of the, the, the grass is greener on the other side, but we have to be very careful about getting rid of the system that we have as much as we don't like certain parts of it, because oftentimes the, the ideas that are bandied about as solutions wind up coming up short. And in places that have used ranked choice voting, that has actually been the case. I mean, take, for instance, the, uh, the the experience in Utah, which has been running a pilot project to test out ranked choice voting at the local level for the last number of years. 
And just this year, over half of the jurisdictions that were using ranked choice as part of that pilot project have withdrawn and they're not going forward because they said those promises for saving money, making the system uh, easier for voters have never actually materialized. And you see in Arlington County, Virginia, a, a heavily Democratic area where they used ranked choice earlier this year for a Democratic primary. They used it in one election and it was such a disaster that the county is already announced they are not going to do that for the general election this November. So we have to be careful to remember that while we have problems with the current system, that doesn't mean that solutions like this are necessarily going to be better. In fact, the practical experience in many places has been that it is worse. The current system, can you make an affirmative case for the, the current system? And you mentioned earlier, perhaps we can improve the current system. What would you like to see changed? Well, I generally like to uh, find ways to make the system that we've got work better, uh, be more transparent, be more secure, invite more people into the process by showing them that their vote matters, that their vote counts, and uh, and ultimately by delivering an end to an election, you know, get clear results as close to election night as possible so that we can all move on with our lives and have a, a system of government that we trust. And I think that means looking at safeguards for the process, things like voter identification laws, uh, protections for mail ballots, make sure that we've got clean voter rolls, and then some of the procedural uh, issues, you know, request dates, receipt dates, things like that. In other words, we, we have identified at HEP a number of problems with the system. We've got solutions that will make it work better. And in terms of the kind of broader affirmative case for the system that we've got, you know, plurality elections are clear. They deliver good results. And, you know, if you're asking me to kind of make the uh, the moral case, well, I think that someone like Abraham Lincoln winning the presidency with a plurality of votes nationwide is as clear a, a demonstration that the system can work and can deliver excellent leaders. And no one would argue that uh, Abraham Lincoln is anything other than an excellent democratic leader for our country. Uh, so I think that the system that we've got can work. We just need to be making conscious policy choices that help ensure that it works as well as it can and as well as it used to before we started moving away from some of these standards. And for instance, pushing for all mail elections and letting ballots come in weeks after election day. So I think that uh, the focus should be on ensuring that we've got uh, plurality elections, we've got clear rules, we've got strong safeguards, and that we're listening to voters who say that their most important thing is getting confidence in the process, not coming up with new ways to vote like ranked choice voting. Jason Sneed is executive director of Honest Elections Project at HonestElections.org, also the co-author of the book, The Case Against Ranked Choice Voting. You can find him on X, formerly Twitter, at Jason W. Sneed. Jason, thanks so much for joining us today on Future of Freedom. It was, it was my pleasure. Thank you. We thank both of our guests for joining us on today's program, Walter Olson, Senior Fellow at the Cato Institute, Cato.org, and Jason Sneed, Executive Director of the Honest Elections Project and co-author of the book, The Case Against Ranked Choice Voting. For additional episodes of the Future of Freedom podcast and other fine podcasts from America's Talking Network, check out americastalking.com or anywhere you find your audio. Thank you for listening to Future of Freedom presented by America's Talking Network.